You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Starting with verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, we uh, look to you this morning that you would be pleased to instruct us and help us, O Father, to gain understanding of your word. For we gaze into its profundity, Father, and there are many verses, Lord, that are hard for us to understand. Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to enlighten us this morning and not just to settle any kind of theological curiosity that we may or may not have, but, Father, you would enlighten us so that we could come to understand and apply these verses and order our lives around these verses, that, Father, our lives would be found in alignment with your word, and therefore, Father, we would find ourselves more Christ-like as a result. Lord, do this work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we get into really beginning to explain each of these verses, I want to do a little housekeeping. If you look at verse 26, notice the the phrase, in Christ. And it says, verse 26 says, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. And this phrase, in Christ, is a phrase that occurs Um, scholars tell us something, I didn't count them, but something like more than 160 times in Paul's letters. Um, And it is one of his trademarks. Um, I brought a commentary. I was going to read a paragraph from this commentary as an introduction. I decided not to because I really don't like to do that. You start reading things and your minds will start to go fishing. Um, I didn't want to do that to you, especially this early in the game. If we're fishing now, we're in big trouble. Uh, But I share this with you because sometimes folks are asking about um, commentaries. You have a commentary we could recommend, and this one's written by Derek Thomas. It's uh, it's um, published under the banner of Truth Trust, and it's a really good. I haven't read the whole thing. I can see where my bookmarker is. I haven't read all of it. I, I sometimes skim it, um, but it's everything I've read is outstanding. It's an outstanding introduction to. Uh, Galatians. So I I hold this up. Um, But Derek Thomas actually speaks of this in Christ, or in the Greek, in Christo, you'll hear us talk about sometimes, of that phrase happening more than 160 times in Paul's 13 letters that he contributes to the New Testament. And it is a major theme in what we come to this morning. If you just take a quick look, verse 26, in Christ, uh, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, and Christ, of course, is being brought into the English in a possessive. You'll know the apostrophe and S there at the end of Christ. So if you are then Christ's possession, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So we have this theme of being in Christ, into Christ, uh, put on Christ. And that's where Paul is taking us. Now, before we get to those verses, we've got to develop a couple of metaphors. And one actually begins to be developed uh, in the previous verses. Uh, and if you look, and, and really probably what we ought to do is go clear back to verse 19. And from there, maybe back just a couple of steps. In verse 19, Paul asks, why then the law? And um, that's a question that we see will normally uh, come out of Paul's argument. Paul's been arguing all along through this whole thing that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. And as I said last week, imagine being first century Israelites who, okay, Abraham's an important figure. We understand the promises given to Abraham. We have our Old Testament um, scriptures. We understand that. But we also, would, we also would see Moses as being pretty important too. And Paul has been arguing that faith in Christ uh, is, you know, uh, how we uh, get right with God. And that's the only way we get right with God. It's not through our law keeping. It's through faith in Christ. And he's been saying this over and over and over and over and over again. So to try to put ourselves in the shoes of the first century audience, which is something we need to do as we're interpreting Scripture, and if we're putting our shoes in or putting our feet in Jewish shoes in the first century, we're naturally asking here, Paul, what about Moses? You know, what about the law? And, of course, that's the question that Paul asks, and a related question to it is in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises? Now, he answers the, the question in verse 19. He says it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. We spent a majority of our time last week just looking at that, and I had introduced a number of uses to the law uh, or for the law last week, if you will. And the first thing that I introduced was that the law curbs sin, and I used the example of the ministry that I used to do when I would go out to Columbiana County Jail and do services out there for the inmates. Uh, I shared with you that I don't know how long I'd been out there. Maybe, may have been maybe going out there every other Sunday for a year. I don't remember now. It's been too long ago. But one one day when I went out there to do the services, one of the correction officers had a clipboard and and he called me aside and he said, "Here, I want to show you something." And they had graphs of the inmates that had been attending the services that I was leading, and they showed the behaviors. And you could see a lot of them. A lot of them were pretty pretty ornery. Um, and you could see the, the graph kind of had some of the, they had just one word um, uh, uh, statements for the kind of behaviors that, were, that, they were, that they were doing. But you could see on that graph that as they attended these services, those behaviors just come down. And it was really quite amazing, actually. It was almost, almost unanimous, all of them. And the, the correction officer wanted to show me that. And I shared with you last week that, you know, I didn't think that all of these, in if you would ask me, do you think all these inmates have come to faith in Christ? Oh, no, 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 no. Not at that time. I don't know what has happened since then. I'd like to think that some of those seeds that were planted have indeed uh, grown into fruition in their hearts and lives. And I pray. I haven't heard from 
any of those folks for many years. But at that time, would I have, uh, if someone would ask me, do you think these folks, these men and women have come to faith? I would say emphatically not. No, I don't think that. But what we're seeing is the fact that God's, God's law does curb behavior. It does restrain behavior. Uh, and it's no accident that as we've taken God's law out of our own culture, you know, pulling uh, the commandments off the courthouse walls, as, as we've done that, it's, it's, it shouldn't amaze us that we're finding ourselves in an increasingly lawless society um, because God's word does curb behavior. So setting that aside... We talked about three other things that the law does. One is it reveals sin, doesn't it? We're drawing from the, Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul says, I wouldn't even know what it is to covet if the law wouldn't have come and said, you shall not covet. So the law, I mean, we have our conscience that points out sin to us. I mean, we all have a, a conscience and it's a, it's a moral meter that we all have running that God has given us. We can sear that conscience by sin, of course, but we have that conscience uh, but when the law comes, uh, it reveals it for sure, doesn't it? Uh, but we saw another thing that the law does. The law not only reveals sin, but it also increases it. I used the, little, the example of little Junior getting into the cabinets. You know, this, I, I knew this would relate with some of you. After you're crawling around a little bit and they start to get some motor control of the arms, then you discover you can open these cupboard doors where all the poisonous stuff is inside, and, and mom sees that, and to her horror, she sees little Junior about to get into that stuff, and she says, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be in there. And what do these laws, what do these commandments do to our fallen hearts? They make us want to be in there all the more, don't they? So, okay, the law is revealing sin to us. The law increases it. It increases our desire to want to break it. But it also turns sin into transgression. We saw that last week, too. That was, a third, a, well, it was actually a fourth thing that we pointed out. But for this morning, I want to offer it as a third thing that it points out. And how does that work? Well, you're driving down through an area you've never been uh, before. You're watching this, the, the speed limit signs. It's 40 miles an hour for, I don't know, several miles. You're going 40. Next thing you know... You have a police officer pulling you over. You see the lights in your rearview mirror, so you pull over, and the police officer comes up to the door, and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? And you say, no, actually, I don't. He says, well, you were going 40 through a 25-mile-an-hour zone. Okay, well, I didn't see the sign. That's happened to us all, hasn't it? Maybe we haven't gotten pulled over, but we don't always see these signs. Um, we don't always see this stuff. It happens to us. We're thinking about a bunch of other things. Police officer says you were going 40 in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. Okay, we have broken the law. You know, have we committed a sin? Yeah, we've, we've committed a sin against that community because these uh, speed limits are a sign for the safety of the people that live in that community, right? So we've sinned against that community, of course. Um, this is what we would call sin. Okay, if the, if the police officer lets us go with a warning, grace, grace. Um, if we get a ticket, okay, fair enough. But let's, let's think about a second scenario. We're going down through the same area. We notice that um, we have a reduced speed limit ahead. We see that it's 25 miles an hour, but we keep on cruising 40. Okay, here comes the lights. Same question. You know why I've pulled you over? Now, if we're honest, we're going to say what? <laughs> 
Yes. You're going 40 through this 25-mile-an-hour zone. Now, you can see you're more, you're, you, it, it's worse, isn't it, in the second illustration? Why is it worse? Because we haven't just sinned against this community now. We have also transgressed. Sin has become transgression. How did it become transgression? Because we crossed over a boundary that we knew about. We saw the 25-mile-an-hour sign. We still continued to go. So this is, this is one of the things that the law does. It reveals sin to us. It increases our desire to want to break it. And it transforms sin, which is bad enough, into transgression. Okay. Can we stop in and of our own self? You know, sometimes I use this as an illustration, especially when I'm doing evangelism. You know, when, especially when people maintain, yeah, you know, I know you've got your thing that you're really excited about, Jesus and gospel and all that. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I think when God looks at my life, he's going to see a lot of bad, but I think he's also going to see the good. And I think I'm going to be okay. I think that's going to be fine. Um, okay. One thing I like to say in the midst of that is, okay, for the rest of the afternoon, be good. Just be good. You remember now, you got to be perfectly good. Just do that. Just for one afternoon. That's usually a showstopper. Can it be done? You see, if you look down at verse 22, Paul says the Scripture, and what he means by the Scripture there is the law. He says the Scripture imprisoned everything. Uh, that word in prison could be translated constrained. So here we are, and it's not that the law is bad. Paul tells us in Romans 7.12 that the law is holy and good. In fact, the law is gracious in the respect that the law shows us how we're supposed to live. We need somebody to tell us how we're supposed to live. But the law also reveals the holy character of God, and it's gracious in this respect. So the law is good, but what effect does the law have on us as lawbreakers? It, it points out our faults. It's just, con does anybody, do you, do you have anybody in your life that's just always wanting to point out your faults? Yeah, a couple eyes have rolled. That means you do. It's like, they just love to point out your faults. They're always pointing out your faults. You know, if you've had anybody in your life like that, you know what I'm talking about. Just pointing out your faults, pointing out your faults. That's what the law does. It offers us no help whatsoever to obey it. In fact, what does Paul say? If you look at verse, uh, be verse 10, verse 11. It says, if, the, if, the, if there was a law that could give life, then obeying the law would be um, or righteousness would be by obeying the law. Um, the law is completely powerless to actually give us life. In other words, the law is completely powerless to be able to offer us any help to obey it. Now, let's go back to that illustration of constraint. When you go back to this illustration of constraint or this imprisonment, here we are, okay, as lawbreakers. We're given these laws. We're given these commandments. 
What does that do to us? Well, it's, it's beginning to, it, it, it increases our desire to want to break the law. It increases, if you will, the guilt as we disobey the law, because now sin actually is turned into transgression, if you will. And you can almost feel, as you think about this, you can almost feel those walls closing in on you, can't you? And there's no way out. In and of ourselves, there is absolutely no possible way out of this thing. So I think you can see why Paul would choose to use a metaphor like imprisonment. And that's what he's doing if you look at verse 22. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now let's look at verse 23. Paul says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You see there, he's continuing on with that metaphor of imprisonment. He calls it being held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, let's not forget, let's not lose the forest for the trees here. Let's not forget that Paul's answering the question, why then the law? Let's not, it's easy to forget that, isn't it? Maybe we've already forgotten it. We have to remember three things are important in studying Scripture, right? Context, context, and context, right? He's answering this question. And we're told that the law was given because of transgression. Okay, now he's telling us that we were... And and really, he's not speaking so much of Christian experience in verse 23 as he is speaking of salvation history in verse 23. That's an important thing. That's really important. It's not that Christian experience is unrelated whatsoever, But Paul is speaking about the Jewish people here, isn't he? Because it's to the Jewish people. Abraham's the father of the Jewish people. It's to him that the promise comes. And it is to the Jewish people that that God gave his law through Moses, right? So when uh, Paul's talking about we being held captive under the law, it's not the Gentiles who had the law, is it? It's clearly he's talking about salvation history. It's really important. Let me just say on the side, it's important that we make this distinction because there are some who will do evangelism kind of like this. They'll point the law out, which is not a bad thing. I don't think it's good as a cookie-cutter approach to point the law out to people. I talked with somebody a couple of weeks ago. If I'd have given them the law, I would have crushed them even further than they're already crushed. That's not a good... People that say, this, this is how you do evangelism, and they always go about it one way. Don't follow that. We are not... You just can't... There is no cookie-cutter way to do evangelism. We're all different. The, I, in my opinion, the very best thing to do is to talk to people, ask them what they believe, and let them tell you what their history is like. Let them tell you where they're at. And the example of the person that I spoke to a few weeks ago, oh, if I'd have, if I'd have given that person a lot, I'd crushed them even further. They had some terrible things in their past, which has caused them to really question everything. And it's much better to hear their past. It's much better to hear where they're coming from. Uh, Because what do these folks need? These folks need the love of God given to them. Uh, This person didn't need any law given to them. This person understood very clear that, oh, I'm a lawbreaker. I know that. I don't need anybody to tell me that. But they were having a really hard time processing any love. How could God love me? Now, what's Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, he's speaking about the Jewish people. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned, if you will, until the coming faith would be revealed. When he uses the word faith in verse 23, what is he talking about there? He's talking about faith in Christ. 
And what he's talking about here is salvation history, not so much Christian experience. Do you follow me there? In other words, he's talking about how God's plan of salvation has been revealed through the ages. The promise comes to Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, 17, and onward. Then God gives the law to Moses 430 years later, right? God, Moses comes down off the, off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and then the law is given. Now, what's Paul saying? We were held captive by this law. What was the purpose of the law? Now, let's not understand that no one had faith prior to Jesus coming. Let's not understand it that way. Because uh, we are told that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. But there was a sense where this is instructive because as those laws come, what do they do? Those laws teach us that there is no way we are ever going to be made right based on our performance. In fact, as soon as you start taking all this seriously, what's it do? It's going to start to become like a prison. I'm stuck in here. That's why I tease the kids. You know, I can't do it much anymore because they've always... Once you, you can only do this for a little bit, and then it's over. The gig's up, you know. It's not, a, it's not a gig, but, you know, I tease the kids. You know, I want to go to heaven, but I can't be good. The first time you say something like it to the kids, and I did it over there in the kitchen, I don't know, a couple years ago, their little eyes just, up. Oh, wait a second, the pastor's telling them he can't be good. I can't be good enough to go to heaven based on my own performance. Maybe if I try harder, maybe I can, Right? Well, you, you turn the treadmill up and you try harder. What happens? Well, that isn't hard. That isn't good enough. So you turn it up more. Well, then that isn't enough. You make it go as fast as it can. How long can you run like that? You can just feel this thing constraining, constraining, constraining. Now, why would God do that? So that he could reveal one single door. One single door. There is, it's important that we understand there is only one single door in this prison cell. There is only one way out. And what way is that? Faith in Christ. It's the only way out. Does that make sense? And I think this, I'm developing it this way because Paul brings in another, another metaphor in verse 24 that I think is really helpful here. So then, verse 24, the law was our what? Guardian, right? Now, the old King James translation famously used the word schoolmaster. And a lot of the uh, modern translations have moved away from schoolmaster because these guardians, they almost were never teachers. In some cases, they might have been teachers, but they, they weren't teachers. They were disciplinarians. They were usually elderly men who were slaves, uh, many of them uh, captured prisoners in some war somewhere and then sold off into slavery. They would be purchased by well-to-do families, and uh, they would be assigned to their children, typically from the age six till late teenage years. And they would be responsible for getting the kids around to wherever they needed to go, but they were especially responsible for disciplining the kids. And of course, you can imagine there's a lot of uh, a lot of rhetoric. If you start studying uh, this from antiquity, there's a lot of rhetoric where many of them were very harsh. That's not always the case. Alexander the Great famously loved his guardian very, very deeply. So it's not always the case, but oftentimes the case, these disciplinarians were harsh. But again, who is the guardian? The guardian is the one who's constantly pointing out your faults. 
That's what the law does, isn't it? Wait a second, you just blew it. What was that thought? Did I catch that right? Listen to the way you just talked to your, your fellow coworker back there. Or maybe you didn't talk to them that way, but you wanted to, and all the things you had. I mean, you know the deal, right? Paul is saying the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified, not by our law-keeping, but by faith. And in verse 25, Paul says, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And Paul's using an imagery here. The guardian was typically assigned to a child from the age of six till somewhere in their late teenage years. But after they reached a certain age, well, then the guardian was no longer necessary. You know, the childhood is wonderful, but there are a lot of constraints involved with childhood, isn't there? I mean, you're not free to do whatever you want to do. Um, you, you shouldn't be anyway. Um, but as you get older, you gain freedom, right? Uh, and this is what Paul is pointing at here. And in fact, we could say that in Christ Jesus, we actually become free really for the first time in our lives, don't we? Why? How could we become free? Well, prior to faith in Christ, we always want to do what's wrong, don't we? Not, well, maybe not always, but often. The things that, a lot of the things that we desire to do the most are things that are wrong. Or we take things that perhaps they're okay for us to do, but we love doing them too much. We, we make idols of all of these things. And there's never any freedom in that because these idols, they always clench their, their, their fingernails into us. They clench their teeth into us. They won't let us... They won't let us go. But as soon as you give your heart to Christ, as soon as he comes in and opens up your heart and gives your eyes, what's he do? He sets you free. How does he set us free? Because he progressively works in our heart to want the desires of the things of God. And that's why as we walk and we grow in our, our Christian maturity, I mean, we find increased freedom. You know, for example, we're praying about something that's in our lives, and it could go, it could go this way, it could go that way. We're really praying it goes this way. But the more we walk with Christ, the more we're like, Lord, if it's your will that it goes this way, the opposite way I want it to go, it's well with my soul. That's freedom. Because it's going to go the way God wants it to go. That is the way it's going to go. And that's the only place where we're going to find freedom. In heaven, we are going to be perfectly 100% free because we are going to desire what God desires through our entire souls. No need for a guardian. And there's not going to be any, any need, even the law. I mean, the law is, I mean, we could get the bad impression of the law. That law is bad. That law is bad. Well, in one sense, it's bad because it's always pointing out our faults. But in heaven, there's not going to be any faults to point out. Think about that. I said, a, 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 I don't know, a few weeks ago, I said, you know, one thing I'm looking forward to uh, after this life is not sinning against God no more. Are you with me there? Not sinning against God no more. Now we must move on. This is good stuff, but we must move on. Look at verse 26. 
for in Christ. There's that phrase I spoke about at the beginning. What does that mean, in Christ? Well, as we put our faith in Christ, what happens? As we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is bringing us in union with Christ. And as we come in union with Christ, what happens? All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places become ours. It's only through faith that all these things become ours. Without faith, none of those things are ours. Without faith, the only thing that belongs to us is God's wrath, actually. But as we put our faith and trust in Christ, all of these things become ours. And what is Paul saying here? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, what's interesting here, and Jay Fesco points this out in a sermon that he preaches on this. There's a commentary that he has uh, produced, um, and it's a series of sermons. You know, it's, it's really helpful. And in his um, exposition of verse 26, he points out the fact that sons, and he points out the fact that in antiquity, women did not have these inheritance rights like men did. And he said, don't lose, don't lose a hold of this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons. We could read that and we could say, okay, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons uh, or daughters. That is true. But what Fesco points out is what Paul is saying here is even the ladies are like sons in the respect that they become heirs. That's pretty wonderful. It'd be easy to lose, isn't it? I'm thankful he points that out. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. We could go into baptism quite a bit this morning, and then we wouldn't get any further, and this would be really lengthy. But let me just say a couple of things here. Paul, as he's speaking about baptism into Christ, he's connecting this with verse 14. If you look back to verse 14 with me, Paul speaks there in verse 14 of the blessing of Abraham coming to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised what? You see that verse? The promised spirit through faith. Okay, we're not united to Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit. It's just not, it's just, if we're united to Christ in saving faith, the Holy Spirit is operative in our hearts. And Paul here is making a theological point for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's pointing to baptism of the Holy Spirit here is what he's pointing to. You know, John the Baptist, what does he say as he's introducing Jesus? He says, there's one who's coming after me who's greater than me, whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with what? He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So that baptism is primarily what's in view, but there's a couple of other things that are in view here. A couple of other things that are in view is how does this blessing come to us? If we go back to verse 13, we're told that Christ becomes a curse for us. In fact, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And this might, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, this might make you think of Luke chapter 12, verse 50, where Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how much is my distress until it is accomplished? And what's he clearly talking about there? He's talking about the cross, isn't he? And there we see that in one respect, okay, Jesus' baptism, okay, or, or rather baptism itself, is pointing us to Christ's cross work. And as I've pointed out many times, circumcision does the same thing. 
Circumcision with that bloody rite of putting off is pointing to Christ's cross work. There we see circumcision and baptism meeting at the cross. But here's the wonderful thing that be, is that's being developed in our text is that the blessings that come to us in Christ have come to us through the anguish of Christ. The blessings that come to us, as good as they are, as wonderful as they are, they have come to us through the anguish of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that make you want to praise Him? After you're done crying, doesn't that make you want to serve Him? After you're done crying. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized in Christ. Now, of course, these folks have been baptized. They're going to be thinking of their baptism. But Paul's not, Paul's not making baptism necessary here, as some people teach. As Derek Thomas, he points out in this commentary that I, that I brought to your attention, he says this, if I'm remembering right, I think I can get it word for word. He says, Paul has been arguing that circumcision is not necessary for salvation. So he is not going to argue that circumcision is not necessary on one hand, only to begin to argue that baptism, that's water baptism, if you will, is necessary on the other hand. We have been commanded to be baptized, and we should be baptized. But we're not going to add baptism to faith in Christ for salvation, as is sometimes done. But certainly people are going to be thinking about their water baptism, and we should think about our own. What is that water baptism? What does it remind us? We talk about this a lot. It's a sign of the, of the new covenant, isn't it? It's, it symbolizes what Christ has done. It points to what Christ has done. And I think here what we're seeing is it's pointing to the fact that all these blessings that come to us, they come to us through the anguish of Christ. But they are also pointing to the fact that we are one in Christ. What does Paul say here in verse 27? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, before we go developing verse 28 to say what it does mean, let's get a few things out of the way as to what it doesn't mean. That doesn't mean as we become uh, believers, we become genderless. That's not being taught here. Um, the distinctions that we have before we come to Christ are not removed. That's what, you know, in case you're wondering, what's, what's Revelation chapter 7 got to do with the text we're studying? And I chose it because of verse 9. You don't necessarily have to turn there. You can if you want. But... Here in this vision that God gives John, he says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, one thing that John is able to recognize in this vision is the fact that these people are from all different kinds of places. So those distinctions aren't removed. You follow me? 
Well, if we go back to Gen- or Galatians 3, verse 28, and Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. What he's talking about is all the walls that exist between these groups. Paul says in another place that the gospel, you know, it brings the wall of hostility down between Jew and Gentile. Earlier in our letter, we spent a lot, in our study of this letter, we spent a lot of time where Paul criticizes Peter because what is Peter doing? He's building that wall back up between Gentiles and Jews. How's that? Now, for those who weren't around for that, Peter comes into, into Antioch and what's he doing? He's eating and celebrating, you know, celebrating with everybody in the church. Gentiles and Jews alike. But then this circumcision party comes from Jerusalem and Peter begins to withdraw from the Gentiles. And what's happening? Well, Peter's, you know, we, after church, we, 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 we go to wherever's house or wherever and Peter's not eating with us anymore. Now he will only eat with the circumcision party. Now, what has that done? That's put that wall back up, hasn't it? And, and Paul is right to call Peter on it. So, Peter, what are you doing? You're out of step with the gospel. The gospel brings that wall down. And that's what's being talked about right here. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. There's unity between these groups. It doesn't remove our distinctions. God has created us, male and female, as he has wanted us to be created. We can't change that. All we can do is make a mess out of ourselves trying to change that. We cannot change that. And this passage doesn't teach that we can. What it does teach is the unity that we have between one another when we're both in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? I think I say, does that make sense? Probably 30 times in every sermon. I don't know how many I'm up to now, if anybody's counting. Um, But does that make sense? It's wonderful. Verse 29, and if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. We could tease this out in a different way from verse 29. What this means is regardless of where we came from, If we come from Chester, West Virginia, or we come from East Liverpool, Ohio, or we come from Hookstown, Pennsylvania, or wherever it is that we come from, or if we come from Australia, or we come from Niger, we come from wherever, we are one in Christ Jesus, if we're Christ. And that doesn't remove our our identity in terms of all these various ethnic ethnicities. And I think if we think about that for a minute, God is, God is much more glorified by that, is he not? Because what is God doing? He's coming down to this world, this fallen world, where there exists all this racism and all of this, all of this prejudice and all of these walls and all this hostility. And what is he doing in Christ Jesus? He's making us all one and leaving us very clearly from all these different places so that that will be an eternal testimony to the fact that the Lord has eradicated that hostility. And he's done more than eradicate that hostility. In place of that hostility, he has put 
love in that place. Oh, it's not like the hostility's gone and now we're indifferent to each other. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not the picture at all. No, we madly love each other. Not in an evil way. That's something else I'm looking forward to. That's something else I'm looking forward to, is that we're going to be able to love each other properly and perfectly. Do you ever pray for that? I pray for that all the time. Lord, help me to love properly and perfectly. I think our time is spent, but I think we made it to the end. Someone might be wondering, what's the point of all of this? It does sound like there's no point to it all. But the point of it is in Christ. What's Paul talking about? In Christ. For in Christ Jesus, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ. If you are Christ, then you're offspring, heirs according to promise. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that, Father, you will use this message. Use this message, O oh, Father, to reach and touch our hearts. I praise, Father. I pray, Father, that, Lord, help us to understand these things. I pray, Father, you'll give us more than understanding. Help us to embrace these things. Help us to even love these things. That we would see just the magnitude of what you've done to us in Christ Jesus. And Father, I, I pray, Lord, that you will cause this, O oh Lord, this message to go out and, and reach, Father, people in this valley with this message. I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.